Good morning. I missed you. Really good to be back. Uh, thank you for your prayers while we were away on vacation. As many of you know, probably all of you know, it's been a very transitional year for our family. And so vacation provided a great time for us to be together as a family, to reconnect and recharge, and also got to visit Susie's family in South Carolina. So thank you for your prayers while we were away. We will continue this morning our study through the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 19. However, uh, your bulletin, I decided after it went to print to change the Scripture a little bit. The screen will have the correct scripture printed on it, or you can open up your Bibles uh, and use that. John chapter 19, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 30 this morning. Follow along with me as I read. This is God's holy word. There they crucified him. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, so that they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to seize who it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your um, word is good, that it revives the soul, and we pray that now you would come and renew us through it. Help us this morning to see the cross in a new way, in a way that would move us, or that would take a work of your spirit. So come through the Holy Spirit uh, and help us this morning with this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, At the beach recently, it was a dreaded red flag day. (laughs) You know what the red flag means, don't you? You can't go in the water because supposedly there are rip currents, rip tides. And I don't know about you, but if you're going to the beach on vacation, that's the last thing you want to (laughs) see. 
you want to go in the water. I want to ride the waves with my children. I want to ride the waves and have fun. And as you keep going to the beach enough times and you keep seeing the red flag, you know what inevitably happens, don't you? We're no longer moved by the red flag. We tend to ignore the red flag and think that the Coast Guard is perhaps overreacting. And yes, I have done that, unwisely so. Your pastor breaks the rules. And uh, on this particular day, uh, I did not get in the water, although it was a red flag day. I was sitting here talking with my friend on the beach, and all of a sudden he says, that guy's in trouble. He's caught in a riptide. And so we both got up. We were hesitant because we didn't want to get caught in the riptide, but we wanted to save this guy's life. We get a little bit probably knee-deep in the water and realize he's going to be okay. He makes it in. He's completely exhausted. He's sitting slumped over trying to get his breath, and he points out and says, My friends! And he he was going after his friends, and he looks out into the ocean. Thankfully, they had a raft, and they were floating on the raft, but they could not get back in. They kept going further and further out. 911 was eventually called, and these people were rescued. You see, we often, when we think about the cross, we're kind of like that, aren't we? We're like the people at the beach who see the red flag and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, we have a tendency to ignore or no longer be moved by the cross because we've heard it our entire life. We've grown up with it, some of us. We've heard it in Sunday school. We have it hanging hanging. In our sanctuaries, we wear it around our necks, and we tend to look right past it, just like the people did the red flag on that particular day. So this morning, what I hope that will happen in our time together is that we would revisit the cross, and that Jesus, through his Spirit, would take this so that we might hear it in a new way that we might receive it in a new way, and it might move us. See, I pray this morning we would be moved by the cross. And let me explain what I mean by moved. By mean, by being moved, I don't mean I want to dramatize this to be the bloodiest, most gruesome, goriest thing that you've ever seen in your life. I do not want to Gibsonize the cross. Because I don't want you to leave here feeling guilty on the way it's described. I'm not saying there's not a place for that, but here's the problem with that. The the gospel writers themselves don't do that with the cross. Did you ever notice that? Look all through the gospels. Look at verse 18. There they crucified him. Yes, I will give you that perhaps it's because they knew about crucifixions and what that was like. But also, there's a theological reason. When the, when the apostles write and describe the crucifixion, they are wanting to communicate the theological significance of Jesus' death, not primarily the bloodiness and the gruesomeness of it. And so, by being moved by the cross, I mean this. I want the cross this morning to become personal to us. I want us to see the significance of the cross and the crucifixion and how it applies to our life right here, right now, in July 2017. So this morning, we're going to look at three things. Imagine that. 
the cross in our shame, the cross in your sin, and the cross in your life. Let's look at number one, the cross in your shame. Look at verses 23 through 24. After the soldiers had crucified him, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. This was not something that was unique to Jesus. This happened in every crucifixion back then. It was commonplace. If, if you were to execute and crucify someone, one of the payments for the executioner, and in this particular uh, scene with Jesus, there were four, one of the payments would be you got to keep as kind of a trophy the clothes or the possessions of the person that you were crucifying. That's what's happening here. And so they take Jesus' garments and they take that final piece of clothing, his undergarments, and they crucify him naked. Completely naked. And we don't like to go there. In fact, traditional art and movies often picture Jesus, he's covered up with a loincloth. But friends, Roman crucifixions didn't happen that way. They stripped you of every single piece of dignity that you have got. And they hung you on a cross for the world to see. And you see, we don't like that, and so we gloss over it. And we make it better and clean it up because it's too shameful and too vulnerable for us to imagine. But what if that's exactly the point? What if that is exactly the point? And hang with me. Nakedness, ever since Genesis chapter 3 and Adam and Eve's fall into sin, nakedness is a symbol of vulnerability and shame. Think about it. God created Adam and Eve, and they stood before him, what? And before one another, naked and unashamed. Things were perfectly right. They had nothing to hide. They were free. They were known and loved. That didn't last very long. Genesis chapter 3, what happens? They rebel against God and everything begins to unravel and God comes looking for them in the garden and remember what happens. They run as fast as they can and they hide. And they get these fig leaves and they cover up. Why? Because they're deeply ashamed. You see, the Bible's picture, the Bible's image for us of shame is nakedness. What is shame? Well, remember the difference. Guilt is I feel bad because I've done something bad. Shame is I feel bad because of something that I am. Guilt, I made a mistake. Shame says I am a mistake. We all, as the Avid brothers say, struggle with loads and boatloads of shame. And if you ever are, have felt shame or you're noticeably different in any way, shape, or form, you have felt this, haven't you? Friends, Jesus was crucified naked, completely exposed, completely vulnerable, he was stripped bare and lifted high for everyone to see. 
And he was in that moment shamed and humiliated and ridiculed and rejected by his own people and ultimately rejected by his father. And John in this passage is wanting us to be moved by what Jesus is doing here. Because think about it, on the cross, Jesus in this moment is living our worst nightmare, isn't he? Our worst nightmare would be to be hanging there completely naked, being laughed at and scorned and verbally abused and belittled, and he does not cover up. Because he cannot cover up. And he takes the shame. And some of you might be saying, well, okay, but he's sinless. Why? He has nothing to be ashamed of. Well, maybe he's taking someone else's shame. Because you see, he is. Remember, the cross is about substitution. Friends, in this moment, Jesus is taking your shame. And he's taking my shame. He is being rejected, completely exposed, so that you and I might stand before the holy God of the universe, exposed, but not rejected, completely accepted. Jesus rejected so that you and I could never be rejected again. I got a friend, John Stone. He was my area coordinator in RUF for many years. He lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, on the road a lot, traveling to see campus ministers. And that just puts him, sometimes he just tries to make it back home and he'll get get home really late. And so one night, he decides to head back home after a campus visit, pulls into Knoxville about 12.30 in the morning, rounding the corner into his neighborhood, And he sees this two-story house completely engulfed in flames. He's the first one on the scene. He pulls over. He doesn't know if people are out of town or in the house. Pulls over, calls 911, reports the fire, hangs up. Right as he hangs up, he says the garage door starts to open and out pulls a car. (laughs) Got to save the car. Um, And so he gets out, goes up, and this guy, he's obviously completely in shock. He goes to one side of the house and pulls the garden hose out as far as he can to the front of the house. Then he goes to the other side of the house and pulls that hose all the way out as far as he can. He takes a garden hose, gives John Stone, my friend, the other garden hose, and he says, all right, let's do it. They're putting out or attempting to put out the garden, the, this full-blown fire with a garden hose. That's crazy. That sounds silly, because it is. But that is exactly what we look like when we try to deal with our own shame and we try to fix it. See, our house is fully engulfed in shame, fully engulfed in flames, so to speak, and we've got our little garden hoses out trying to fix it and put it out. It's like Adam and Eve, you see. They constructed fig leaves and they hid behind them in order to deal with the shame in their life. And we do the exact same thing. We hide behind so that we don't have to face it. We hide behind our busyness. Because we think if we can stay busy enough and never slow down, we never have to stop and think about what's going on on the inside. And so we just settle and continue to be overworked and over-medicated 
and we overstudy, and we overexercise, and we overeat, and we do all kinds of things in order to avoid and hide and deal with our shame. Or we might acknowledge it and know it's there, and we try to counteract it by just being more involved in good things so that we'll feel better about ourselves. Or we exaggerate the truth about ourselves. And we're never really honest about how we're really doing because we've got to save face before other people. You see, the cross is good news. The cross comes, and it is a call for us to stop trying to fix our shame. The cross is a call for us to put down our garden hoses and give our shame to Jesus and let Him cover us. And you might say this morning, well, Jason, I hear you, but you don't know me. You don't know what I've done and where I've been, the things I've thought. Well, that might be true. I might not know you, but you know what? I know Jesus. And Jesus, in Hebrews chapter 11, says, He's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you His brothers and sisters. You see, that's the cross. Secondly, the cross in your sin. Look at verse 30. The last thing Jesus says before He gives up His life is, it is finished. Think about that just for a second, okay? Jesus is hanging there, bloodied, naked, poor, rejected, between two criminals, and he's ending his life by yelling, it is finished. The world watching would look at that and say, that's utter defeat. But it's not, is it? Because in that cry, it is finished, is a cry of victory. Because every commentator points out that it is finished, those three words in the original language, which is the Greek, is actually one word that means it is paid. It is accomplished. It is a word that would have been written across every first century bill in which debt was to be paid. And when it was stamped on that bill, it said, it is finished. You owe nothing more. The debt has been paid in full. And so then the question becomes, is, it's this. What debt? What are you talking about? What has been finished? Well, the Bible says that you and I have a big problem. And that problem is our sin. Not only have we sinned against one another, but we, the Bible says we've sinned against a holy and righteous God. And because of that, a huge, enormous, infinite debt has been put in place. And so the two options are this. We pay the debt, which is not good news. Or God pays the debt. Verse 30 Guess who pays the debt? God pays the debt. Because of the cross, you see, Jesus paid the debt and absorbed the cost of all of our sin on the cross. He took the punishment so that there's none left for you and I. He paid it in full. Think about it this way. Suppose that you committed a horrible crime and you were arrested and you were taken before a judge and that judge looks at you in this particular courtroom and says, you're guilty, justice must be served, I'm giving you the death penalty, you're going to the electric chair. 
and they're taking you out of this courtroom, and all of a sudden, when you get about to the door, the judge says, wait a minute, oh, I see that someone has volunteered to die in your place. And you look around in the courtroom and say, who's volunteered? There's no one here. Who and why? And the judge says, someone is volunteering to die in your place because they love you. They're willing to die so that you're going to live so that you might live and you're still looking around saying who is this and then guess what the judge stands up he comes down from behind the bench and he takes off his robe and he walks over to the electric chair and he dies in your place justice is served and yet at the very same time it is an act of unbelievable grace the debt and sin of sin that you owe has been paid in full. Friends, Jesus has done it all. All to him we owe. There is nothing that we contribute to our own salvation. One commentator reminded me of this this week. He mentioned Buddha's last words. Remember Buddha's last words? Strive without ceasing. Jesus' last words, it is finished. Let me ask you, which one describes you this morning? Are you resting in Jesus and what he's done for you? Or are you trying and working yourself to the bone in order to make yourself right with God? If we're honest this morning, lots of us, yes, we're Christians, but oftentimes our life looks like we're following Buddha. Because we're striving without ceasing. We're not living in the comfort of it is finished. When Jesus says it is finished, everything that was necessary to save real sinners like you and me was accomplished. And the only way the cross will ever make sense to you, and the only way Christianity will ever make sense to you, is if you see just how far Jesus has gone to save you, how much God was willing to suffer in your place. Because you see, we say this at times at our church, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of the cross. At the very same time, you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of the cross. Thirdly, and quickly, the cross in your life. This is the hard part. This is the part that I want to walk by and ignore and that we want to walk by and ignore like the red flag on the beach that day. Because you know what else the cross means this morning? The cross is a call for every single one of us who claim the name of Jesus to come and die. It's all over the Bible. It's all over the Gospels. John chapter 12, verse 23, we didn't actually study this, but here it is. Jesus, in that passage, is talking about his death. And he says, my hour has come, the hour of my death has come, where I will be lifted up and I will die. And then he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will remain alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Whoever loses, loves his life loses it, but whoever hates his life will keep it. I want us to take that head on without flinching this morning. 
as hard as that is, Jesus is saying, you want to follow me? It is a call to your death. It is a call to give up your rights in going the way that you would normally go, to go the way of the cross. And we might initially, the the question would be, Jason, how in the world could that possibly be good? How could that be something we want? Well, think about John 12. The grain must die in order to what? Bear much fruit. Death, the principle is death leads to life. And let me be really clear about this. I am preaching this, but I can think of a hundred ways in the morning when I will get up and do everything in my power to avoid dying in my own life. So know that I'm preaching to my own heart this morning. It's not like I wake up every morning and saying, yes, I can't wait to die this morning. (laughs) Die to my own way and my own desires. But think about this with me. Everything that you and I desire and long for in this life, how does it come? It comes when someone is willing to die, doesn't it? Think about it. Think about the things you long for. Forgiveness. Love, a great marriage, community, and great friendships, and a healthy business. Those things come when someone dies. Think, for example, you walk into your office tomorrow morning and you get a hard word, a harsh word from your boss. That is a cross. That is a form of suffering. And what happens? Well, you can either respond with a harsh word back or what about a gentle word? What does that do? A gentle word restores, doesn't it? The Proverbs say that a gentle word turns away wrath. Think about your marriage. When is your marriage at its very best when you are the most fulfilled? When both people are sacrificing for one another. When both people are giving up their rights in moving towards one another in love? When is your marriage at its worst? When you're dug in. It's true for me. When I dig in and refuse to lay down my life and to give up my rights, that's when our marriages are at their worst. Someone's got to die. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is costly because someone's got to pay the debt. Someone's got to take that on and take the pain on themselves. You see, as long as we assert our rights in this life, we will never really get the things that we long for. And honestly, can we talk? I hate this. I hate this because I want a quick fix. (laughs) I want everyone else to die. But I don't want to have to give anything up. See, I want it to be easy and comfortable. I want a pill. I want a three-step program. I want a formula. I want a book that I can read. I want to be in great shape with being able to eat whatever I want and not work out. I want to not work out, and I hate working out, but boy, I'll do the cake-battered filled donut from Krispy Kreme all day long. That's what I want. And Jesus says... The center of Christianity, the very centerpiece, is the cross. And it is a call and an invitation to come and do the thing that we don't want to do. It's a call to our death. 
to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. I'll close with this. I heard a story recently about some missionaries in South America in the Andes Mountains, and they were ministering to this particular tribe, and in order for this tribe to get fresh drinking water, they had to climb up and down this very steep cliff in the mountains. And as they learned about this tribe, they realized that when the chief got older and passed away, uh, it came time to elect a new chief. And the ways that they would elect a new chief, would they would get all the men in the tribe together and they would measure their thighs. Yes, you heard me right. They would measure their thighs. And the reasoning was this, that the man with the biggest thighs was the one who had climbed up and down the cliff the most times in his lifetime in order to get water for the tribe. Therefore, they had loved and served the tribe the most. The missionary said that they were there one day ministering and a young man had gone down to get water and had fallen down the cliff and broken both of his legs and needed help and would die by nightfall if someone did not go down and get him. They said at just that moment, the chief steps forward and he takes off his headdress and his robes and all the symbols of being a chief and all of his symbols of glory and he lays them aside and he climbs down. And he puts this young man on his back and brings him all the way up the cliff and brings him to safety. See, that's a picture of the cross, isn't it? Jesus, King Jesus, giving up his rights, stepping out of heaven, taking off his crown, taking off all the symbols of glory and coming down into this world and experiencing humiliation and death and even death on a cross. Why? So that he could put us on his back, so to speak. Pay the debt for our sin. Cover our shame so that we would live. See, my hope this morning is that as we see the cross, instead of ignoring it, like those people did that day and like I've done many times on the beach, ignoring that red flag, I pray that instead of ignoring the cross or not being moved by it, that we would be moved and never be the same. Let's pray.